0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry.
1: I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kishin.
0: And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts.
1: Our absolutely brilliant guest this week is a former chief speechwriter for a Prime Minister. He is the chief leader writer for The Times and the author of When They Go Low, We Go High. Philip Collins, welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, delighted to be here. Well, for anyone who doesn't know you, and before uh, before we go on, I should say, Philip used to speech write for Tony Blair, but that was after the Iraq war, so please don't switch off. <laughs> <up. laughs> right. um, tell everybody, I, I mentioned a few biographical details, just tell everybody who you are, how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through life?
2: Well, I the, the, the point of the where my career kind of took off is when I went to work for Tony Blair, but well, that was a slightly random event because I'd never written a speech before in my life. The very first speech I ever wrote was for Tony Blair. I'd written in all kinds of different formats. I'd written novels, I'd written plays, I'd written lots of comedy sketches, and I loved writing. I'd also worked in politics, and I'd also worked in television, and I'd been an academic uh, political philosopher. So I'd had all these sorts of random things. And I never stuck at anything, my mom used to say. <laughs> and It kind of all came together in political speech writing. So the, the desire to write and craft arguments, which I got from philosophy, came together with political interest and this person, this leader who really wanted to speak, who I was basically in sympathy with politically, though I didn't agree with him on everything, and it just all came together. And I knew people who worked for Blair from my previous life in working for Frank Field many years before, Mm. and they approached me and said, Blair's looking for someone, and I decided I wanted to be the speechwriter. I insisted that I would come, but only if I could write speeches. And they said to me, don't do that, that's a graveyard job, it's awful. He writes all his own speeches, he hates people helping him, it's, it's a terrible job. And I said, no, that's the thing I want to do. And it was that was the best decision I ever made, because it meant, as a speechwriter, I had a real job, I had a very specific job, nobody else wanted my job, which is really important inside Downing Street, and it meant I got to spend a lot of time with the Prime Minister, because I needed to be here all the time what he was thinking. So it was a, a slightly random event, even re- relating it like that, I can't quite remember why I thought that, but I did, and, and that's what happened. And, and ever since I left Downing Street, I've carried on writing speeches for lots of business people and other politicians too, so I've written hundreds of them now.
0: And I was going to say, what is the way that you craft a speech? How do you do it? Is it, because I've written for comedians, do you do it in the politician's voice? Or do you think, right, this is what they sort of want to say, and I'm going to do it what I think? Or how does it work? Yeah,
2: it's very interesting. There is a sort of mimicry there, sort of, but you've got to be careful. The, when I went to work for Blair, he was just going through that period where, his early period, where he didn't use any verbs. You know, <coughs> Yeah, you know, New Labour. Yes, marvellous, wonderful, all that. You know, one word sentence. Great school impression. Teacher. By the way. Yeah, yeah. It is great impression. Although
0: I have to say, as a former primary school teacher who taught English, I'm disgusted at the lack of verbs. Well, <laughs> quite right. So was I. So was I. And so I,
2: I, my job was to put verbs in. Was to was to go from these like very short, scott sentences to proper arguments. So I, I, my task was to change him a little bit. So whilst you are trying to get his voice, because you want this continuous character to unfold through time. I was also trying to change him. So it's, that's a difficult thing. You need to get to know someone quite well. You need to get a sense of their voice. But at the same time, you're trying to capture them at their best at all times. So you're trying to give them the sort of edited highlights of who they are. So whenever I work with people now, I say we want it to sound like you, but you're at your really very best. So let's take all the best things you've ever said and let's put them all together and edit out all the rubbish bits. Mm. And Mm. that, it will still sound like you, but in an elevated, heightened form. And that's what I'm trying to do when I'm I'm capturing a voice. Mm.
1: And what was it like for you coming in from, obviously you said you had worked in politics, but you you clearly had a career that, that was much broader than that. And suddenly you're in this place which is all about the politics 24-7, I imagine. It's intense. It's everything is last minute. What was that like?
2: Well, it, it was like that, but it also wasn't in the sense that Blair was very easy to work for. Mm. And the calendar is reasonably fixed. So I knew when the speech was, and so I had these sort of staging posts. And I'm just quite inclined to do things at the last minute. You know, That's how I like to work. I like the adrenaline rush of the deadline. And he was like that too. Nobody else in the building was. They used to go mad that with a day to go, we hadn't really started. People start too early, in my view. You, You just leave it until the last minute, and then eventually the rush comes.
1: That's what I'm doing for my Edinburgh show. <laughs> I, I think that's admirable. I think it'll be, it'll be marvellous. It'll go, it'll go swimmingly.
2: Uh, but I, I, I used to have this the, the, this, the procedure was for every speech, about a week before, 10 days before the speech was due, we'd have a meeting with a bunch of the, the team to discuss what we might say. And you couldn't do it before then because politics moves so quickly. Anything you did before then would simply be eradicated and, and date. So you'd have that meeting. You'd come to a provisional idea of what you might talk about. I would go away and commission work and research it and talk to the relevant ministers and square people off, etc. I wouldn't write anything at this point. And then with a couple of days to go, we'd have another meeting where I'd be, I was supposed to present what I was going to suggest. And about an hour before that meeting, I'd hastily scribble something down, present it there. At that meeting, Blair would always, always say, oh, but I didn't want that. I wanted this. I wanted that. You haven't put any of this in. And when I was inexperienced, I'd, I'd made the mistake of saying to him, no, it's all in there. Look, all of that stuff is in there. What I learned to do was to say, yes, okay, definitely. Then the next day I'd give him exactly the same script and he'd say, oh, yeah, that's much better. <laughs> that's what I meant. Are you exaggerating here? Or are you genuinely, is I'm, that genuine? I'm exaggerating only a little bit. So you'd change a couple I'd of comments and little suddenly bit, he'll be like, but yeah. I'd change a little bit. But mm. I, would, I would say, I'd take the criticism. I'd say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I'd give him essentially the same thing the following day. And he would feel then that, yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted. And, and at that point, we'd get serious. And then it really kicked off on the morning of every speech where I would go into Downing Street very early, sort of five or six in the morning, and he would have my script, which I would have given him, and he would go up to his flat, and he'd be sitting there in his dressing gown or his boxer shorts, a beautiful image.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I'd go in, he'd be sitting over in the corner, and he would have my script, and he would be scribbling on it. And he'd with a fountain pen, he'd write all over it. And then we'd, we'd cut and paste his bits, and my bits. And when I say cut and paste, I don't mean any newfangled computer terminology. I mean literally cutting with scissors, his bits and my bits. And then we'd take them downstairs to the place where all the typists sat, and we'd paste them on a piece of paper and create this collage that was then the script. I would take that away. This would be like with an hour to go. I'd take it away and then type through it to ensure that all the transitions between his bits and my bits were smooth and that it made sense as an unfolding argument. And that would then be the thing which we'd just about finish in time to go up on the autocue. Now, this is a ludicrous way to work, a terrible way to behave. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but it sort of worked. And was part of that... Down to
0: you know the fact that your styles meshed together quite nicely, and was it also down to the fact that Burr was as or, and continues to be a superb orator?
2: Yeah, it was. We did mesh, and uh, we also I think brought complementary things because my task was to provide the body of the argument. So most of the speeches I worked on ended up being his introduction, a political setting of the scene at the beginning, which was more or less in his voice and his his words. <laughs> then the body of the argument, which I would have write. I came to realize that I shouldn't be precious about any words as such. There's a real mistake you can make is to think that no, it's got to be those words. If you don't make the argument in those words, then then I've failed. Actually, what I wanted to get through was the the correct argument. So the main body of the speech would be mine, where all the, the facts and the illustrations would be, and then he would usually write the ending. He'd write a kind of flourish at the end, which would be a political message. And that was usually the structure we ended up with, and that that worked quite nicely because he By the end, I came to trust me that I would get the argument right. You've got to remember, you've got to have a certain humility that you are writing for him, it's not me. He's the Prime Minister, not me. So there are, perhaps wrongly, but, but he was. And so there are times when you're writing things that you don't necessarily entirely believe, but you have to make the best possible argument that he wants to make, not import your own. Argument and it's important that you recognise that's a fact. See,
0: I'm I'm glad you brought that up because at what point, as a scriptwriter, can you actually go? Do you know what? I vehemently disagree with what this may be. So, for instance, it's interesting that you say you came after the Iraq Mm, War. Yeah, you know. So a lot of people would say, "Hang on, I mean, you know, there are there's very legitimate arguments to say that Blair is a war criminal." Yeah. Would you not feel as a speechwriter slightly morally compromised? By representing his views,
2: I, I think if you if you do, if you get to the point where you just think I can't do this, that's the point where you have to leave. Yeah. So there's you have to judge that. So I mean, it didn't occur to me on that issue. I mean, prior to joining, I was I thought the case for the right War was a poor one, and I wasn't I was a, opposed to it. Um, however, I never thought that that meant he lied about it because having knowing what the the chronology of it was, I know that's not conceivable they couldn't possibly have lied about it because everybody thought that they had the the weapons the, the the error they made and the was the was the use of that material they they exaggerated i think <coughs> the <coughs> the certainty they felt about it to to uphold a, an opinion but i mean that rhetorically is what you always do you always make the best possible case you think well i'm going to do x rather than y therefore i'll make the best possible case for x and that's what they did and i think probably you know culpably and wrongly um, so I was always opposed to it, but I never felt it was so clear cut that it meant I couldn't do it. The one speech I worked on where I really was a long way from his sensibility was on um, identity cards. I was much, much more liberal on crime and home affairs than he was. He was quite right wing on all that stuff. And he was very strongly in favor of British people having identity cards, and I wasn't. And I thought, well, is this a resigning issue? Do I care so much that I have to give up and walk away? And I concluded, no, I don't care that much. Mm. Um, It's not a sort of defining issue of my life. And the weird thing was I wrote probably the best speech I wrote for him, the most forensically tight speech I'd ever did because I was so accustomed to why this was a terrible idea, identity cards, I avoided all the terrible arguments for it and found quite strong arguments for it. And I gave him something which was quite unusual, but he really liked it. So weirdly, that um, distance from the argument helped me.
1: You know, that is such an interesting point, because one of the things we're kind of trying to stay away from in this interview, but we talk about a lot, is the culture wars that are kind Mm -hmm. of happening now. And one of the things seems to be is the desire to shut down the opposing argument. And of course, one of the greatest weaknesses of that processes, you don't ever learn to understand how other people think and to present the counter-argument.
2: That's absolutely right. Good speeches. Speeches fail a lot because people caricature the opposing argument. This happens in politics all the time, where if I were to do, Gordon Brown used to do this really really badly, whereas if, if I say, <laughs> you know, if I were to, to, to do a speech as a, a sort of Labour spokesman and I to, were to an audience which comprises people who are Labour, Tory and, and, and other things in between, and I were to say to them, you know, the Conservative Party is deliberately impoverishing the nation, they're deliberately targeting the poor because they relish the pain that the poor feel. If I'm a conservative voter in the audience, I'd think, that's not me. That's not what I think, actually. I don't think that at all. Whereas if you were to say instead that the Conservative Party doesn't give due priority to the needs of the poor, and in its desire to get the public finances under control, it is doing so at the cost of the poor, that's different. That's not a caricature. That's That might make the conservative voter think, hmm. Ah, I fear that might be true. Mm-hmm. And so to be a little bit more generous to your opponents is actually a really good way of then taking them on. And in politics, you don't get that very often. And I always try to get that into speeches, that you need to name the opposing argument. I'll give you a really good historical example. Elizabeth I at Tilbury. She's the leader of the armed forces. She's queen. It's a Spanish armada uh, gathered, ready to, to try and invade. And all the Navy there, just think... You're a woman. You can't possibly command the armed forces. It's ridiculous." And she goes there to address them, and instead of pretending that's not what they think, she absolutely names that argument. She says, I may have the weak and feeble body of a woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. And she goes straight to the weakness, the perceived weakness of the argument, tells them what they're thinking exactly as they are thinking it, and then turns it around. She wins a standing ovation. And The idea that we have of Elizabeth as this formidable queen dates from that speech, from that moment. And if you name the argument properly and if I tell you or describe to you what you're thinking already in terms which you recognize and you think, yes, that's a reasonable ass- a- account of what I think, then I'm in a better position to engage with you if I take you on because you at least the- feel I've done you the courtesy of understanding what, you're s- what you think rather than if I say you're an, you're an obvious murderer and-, <laughs> and a loathsome individual, you think, actually, I may be, but it's not how I think of myself. <laughs> well, see, this is,
1: and this is what I, I'm curious to get your opinion on, because as you say, in politics, it doesn't seem to happen often. But in the last five years, I think we've gone way off the deep end on that. I mean, you had David Lammy talking about conservatives as worse than Nazis, not just Nazis, worse than Nazis. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Nazis were better dressed than <laughs> conservatives yeah. on the whole. Uh, 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 well, Jacob Rees-Mogg has got a bit of style. Yeah, give him some credit. Uh, <laughs> well, that's but the only time that's ever been said. Anyway, he has. He's it, got a style. Say what you want about <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's got an authentic feel to him. You know who that guy is. <laughs> yeah, you may not true. like him, but yeah. you know who it is. Right. But we've got to this point where... We don't, we, we're not even talking about the argument anymore. It's just you, Nazi, you, this, you, yeah. that.
2: It's name calling, isn't it? Yeah. It's insulting and it's really, really bad. It, we're, we're dialing up rhetorically to 11. And, and um, I mean, that David Lammy speech was really bad. I mean, David Lammy is a very interesting speaker because he's got the biggest range between his good days and his bad days of any politician I've ever seen. Hmm. Because David is capable of being extremely good really eloquent and really powerful and really thoughtful, he's also capable of being terrible as that speech <laughs> d- indicates mm. because that is actually ridiculous you know, t- to, to describe anybody as you know worse than nuts. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> they're really not. <laughs> uh, it's a stupid thing. And it, and it does this cause no, no good because you don't come away thinking, oh, those Tories, yeah, they're about to commit genocide. You come away thinking David Lammy's lost it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've got to be careful. You've got to stay within the bounds of plausibility. But I do agree with the premise of your question, which is we are becoming more raucous, we're becoming less generous, less civil, and uh, politicians are contributing to that. I mean, the obvious example is Donald Trump in the States, and Nigel Farage just sort of you know, smaller version here. Trump is the, the, the one who's really dialing it up. I mean, I noticed the first time I saw Trump... There's, Every American president goes to the, to Gettysburg to do a version of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg address. They all do it, the sort of cover version. It's a rite of passage. And they all go and they do exactly the same speech really, which is a peer of praise to the American Republic, like Lincoln did. Okay. And it's kind of moving. They're all they're all clichés really, but it's nice that they do it because what they're saying is this is a secular liberal democratic government and we're paying our respects. It is a cemetery, after all, the Civil War cemetery, and you're literally standing in front of graves. So it's a, it's a nice moment. The only, two, the only president who didn't do that was Kennedy, because on the day he was due in Gettysburg to do the centenary address, he had to go down to Dallas instead, on important party business. Mm. The next day he was shot, mm. he never came back. Mm. And then in the campaign in 2016, Trump went to Gettysburg. And where Abraham Lincoln spoke for two minutes, 45 seconds, the Gettysburg address. Trump spoke for 45 minutes. Lincoln did a lovely eulogy to government of the people, for the people, by the people. Trump called Hillary Clinton a criminal, uh, said American uh, politics was rigged, said the media were out to get the people, said that um, the political class was, was corrupt and was rigging everything against it. And it was just a horrendous speech. It would have been awful anywhere, but to do it there in Gettysburg deliberately was a real indication that he wasn't going to play by the rules. I thought that is a real escalation. Well,
1: that is something I wanted to ask you about because uh, you can criticize Donald Trump for a lot of things, but not in terms of effectiveness. He's clearly an effective orator. And a lot of people have been very snooty about him because he doesn't speak very clearly. He he doesn't Mm -hmm. come across as someone who's conventionally articulate shall we say but there is no doubt that he's persuasive
2: isn't oh there? absolutely yeah absolutely i mean persuasion comes in many forms and uh, and he actually has persuasion i mean people talk a lot about authenticity and I, it's a very good example we need to be wary of authenticity because some people are really authentic but fucking awful <laughs> you, know, you
0: know
2: trump is extremely authentic that is what he's like he's really good at it he has a character mm. and the word character is very important in persuasion through speeches and you think of the dual meaning of character. It, a character is something that we play. So you, when you're speaking on a podium, it's not a natural event to speak un, uninterrupted for half an hour. You have to play yourself. You have to get into character. You know, it's not that unlike going on stage as a sort of supercharged version of yourself if you're doing a sort of comic routine or some kind of cabaret. It, you, are, you are yourself, but you're not like that all the time. But there's a connection between the two, and being a, a rhetorician is like that but character is also something that you have you know we have character and so you're displaying that sense of character and that's where we get the idea of authenticity from and trump is really good at this and the if you go back to Aristotle, which is the, one of the only trades in which you can, go, comedy being another, where you can go right back to the classics and the, the analysis of how they do it is the same today as it was then. And rhetoric is like this. And Aristotle says there well, are three things. There's character, which he calls ethos. There's pathos, which means emotion. And then there's logos, which means rational argument. And someone like Trump communicates so much through character that you know so much about him just from the way he is. You know, businesses will be brand, and in rhetoric it's character. And he uses emotional arguments all the time. And Aristotle's view, which I'm sure is right, is that character and emotion are far more effective in persuasion than rational argument. Look at the European referendum debate in 2016. One side leave full of emotion, full of character. The other side remain full of rational argument and arithmetic and numbers. And the emotional argument prevailed. And you need all of those elements in a really persuasive argument. And Trump is is very effective. I agree; he's extremely good at what he does.
0: Mm. He seems to me, when when I watch him, he's very much like a stand up stand up comedian in that he's a disruptive force. There is a status quo. He comes in and he disrupts it, and he plays it. Mm. How much responsibility do you think Trump needs to take for his words, so it's "drain the swamp"? You know, the American dream is dead. To this, you know, to the sense of crisis that we seem to have in America.
2: Well, I think he does, but I don't think he will. I mean, I think, you know, he can't be absolved of the usual rules. He did say those things. He does say some terrible things. He says them repeatedly. And he has got the knack of appearing spontaneous, but it's not wholly spontaneous. It's choreographed and it's planned. And during the election campaign, he was very disciplined when he went to Michigan and Ohio, old Rust Belt states. He gave a very disciplined speech about how those people have been cheated by globalisation. So his messages are pretty clear, and they're pretty thought through. He's not just shooting from the hip. You know, he has a script. Mm. You know, he might seem like you know, it's like Billy Connolly, you know, away he goes, but it's all there. There's a sort of, there's a thread. And Trump is like that, too. So he, I think he does have to take responsibility, and it's up to other politicians to make him take responsibility, not just the Democrat Party, but also the Republicans. So I blame lots of the people in the Republican Party for letting this man be their candidate. They sh- they knew what he was like. They saw that Gettysburg speech I quoted. They saw exactly what he was like. They knew what he was going to do. They knew that his whole appeal was to escalate the culture wars, and they knew that that would make politics even less pleasant than it was already.
1: Hard hard to imagine as that <laughs> it is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But you know, I was thinking on the on the flip side of it, a, a person who uh, I respect, who I thought was incredibly eloquent, who I thought was incredibly articulate, uh, inspiring, was Barack Obama. And I also feel like he got away with a lot of things because he was articulate and eloquent. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that, if, say, Trump was doing them, we would be outraged. And we are. In fact, he's doing many of the same things that Obama did in terms of immigration. He's Barack Obama was way worse in terms of foreign policy, in terms of bombing other countries, etc. But he seemed to get away with it a lot more because he was this kind of statesman-like figure.
2: Yeah, Obama was definitely the, the the best speaker in my political lifetime. Mm-hmm. You just just look at what how he did it and what he what he was able to do with words. He was extraordinary. I mean, he came from really nowhere and he won the presidency because he was so so good. Mm-hmm. At his best, too. He's very moving. So there's but there's something about Obama which makes him good which no one else has got. And it's not the the crafting of the words. We can all anyone who is good can do that. It's the fact that behind Barack Obama lies a story. I have lost count over the number of last years of the number of politicians have come to me and said, "Can you make me a bit like Barack Obama?" <laughs> <laughs> and, I have, and I have to say to them all, "Let me count the ways in which you are not like Barack Obama."
0: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Obviously, you can't <laughs> say if Michael Gove came up to you. Well, let's, let's count the ways in which he's not like Barack Obama.
2: One, he's not Barack Obama. Two he's not president of the United States, which gives you a certain license to be grand in a way. Even prime minister of the UK, it doesn't. But three, most important of all, you're not a black man <laughs> who's president of the United States In when there's people who live in that country still remember segregated cities. Now, that is a story. He has behind him the legacy of civil rights. And at his very best, like the speech he did on the night of his first election victory in Grand Park in Chicago, where he talks about a 102-year-old woman in Alabama coming to the... A polling booth to vote for the first time for a black candidate to be president of the United States, he's using her as a metaphor for the progress of the country. And it's incredibly moving. And if anyone else said that, of course, it just wouldn't, you know, if, if you're on just after lunch at the local government chronicle conference talking about housing benefit, that's not going to work. Mm. You can't do that kind of thing. So he has a grandeur, Obama, that other people simply can't have. And that gives him a lot. That's the ethos, that's the character he's got. And that, that's more important in writing brilliantly than anything else. It's not the writing so much as the setting, the moment. I'll give you another classic example, a really great example, Churchill, who um, in the wartime becomes a great, you know mobilized English language, as, as said of him. But if you go back to 1899, Churchill's, 24 years of age. He's a candidate for the Liberal Party in Oldham, in the Northwest. And he stands up in a church hall, insists on a podium. There's about seven people there. (laughs) And he's talking about food rations. And he says, never before in the history of Oldham have so many people had so much to eat. And there's a sort of (laughs) incredibly lavish rhetoric. Then eight years later, he's a junior minister and the colonial department in Africa, and he's standing around a hole in the ground at the opening of an irrigation scheme. There's about seven dignitaries in this vast expanse. Mm. So you can imagine acoustics aren't great. And he, again, he insists on a podium, and he says, never before in the history of Africa have so much water been held up by so little masonry. <laughs> <laughs> it's rubbish. Mm. 1940, suddenly, in the House of Commons, Never before in the field of human history has so much been owed by so many to so few. Exactly the same construction, exactly the same rhetorical flourish, but all of a sudden, the country's in peril, we might be about to be invaded. It seems to fit. The idea of decorum is a rhetorical term, comes from Cicero, and it's decorous. It fits the moment, whereas before, he's talking at a level of elevation which is too big for an irrigation scheme. People get, when people get things wrong in rhetoric, they do, they're doing that. They're going far too high for the moment. You've got to hit the moment. You've got to be appropriate to your audience, to your time. And if your audience is a bit flat and your subject's a bit boring, well, you've, you don't have to be boring, but you have to be plain. You can't go too high. And lots of inexperienced writers reach for purple prose.
1: See, man, this is why my punchlines don't work as well as I think. Because yeah. the audience isn't good enough. I need, to, <laughs> I need to be playing the Apollo, then I'm yeah, going to be yeah, crushing yeah. It. You yeah. need to
2: be on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. Martin <laughs> Luther, be... at the end of the march in Washington. Uh,
0: what Constantine is trying to ask is, can you turn him into Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me hey, man, the... I've got the story. <laughs> let me count yeah. the ways. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the story. Um, um, when it comes to speech writing. How important, so what, it's, it's a lot like stand-up comedy, and I think it was a very good British comedian, Russell Cain, said that uh, stand-up comedy, about 10% of what you say, 90% is delivery. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that when it comes to speech writing, speech writing, political oration?
2: I, I would, yeah. I mean, Demosthenes, who was one of the greats of speech writing, said there are three things that you need for a great speech, delivery, delivery, delivery. <laughs> so um, I think that's largely true, yeah. I think the, the, all of that stuff about character and ethos and emotion largely comes Across through through delivery, and the task of the writer is to write in with the grain of that. Yeah. So it's to is to provide that character sketch so that you don't you don't get this dissonance between the words that you're saying and the character that you've already established. So delivery is crucially important, and not many people can do it. One of the tasks I always give people when I'm trying to get them to be better is to watch yourself with the sound down. So watch yourself back, but turn the sound down. And what do we get? What you get is loads of character. You get a lot of information from people just you know, wandering around or standing at a podium and say, well, you've already got a character. Gordon Brown was a good example because he gave you weight, gravity, without doing anything. He just had that mm-hmm. in, his, in his demeanor. And, but what he would do is write in a weighty, grave way, and that was too much. So it just felt like incredibly serious and, uh, and just way too much. What he should have done is lighten it a little bit in the writing. With a little bit of poetry, for example, because it would have been authentic, because he did read poetry, and it was believable. You've got to make sure that you're writing in a believable way. I learned this by I used to write for John Prescott quite a bit. You know, I used to get told then to go to try and help him out. And um, I gave Sorry.
1: him. Well, Sorry, <laughs> it's you, an you, involuntary <laughs> response. Yeah, but I'm just so. wait
2: till I tell you the story. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Although it's it's really my fault rather than his, but I I found this story, which is a, a standard speechwriter's opening story. It's probably apocryphal, but it re- works really well, and it's allegedly about Dr Johnson and Boswell in their house in Johnson's house in Gough Square, just off Fleet Street. And incredibly narrow streets, and you can the, someone who's in this side of the street can lean, can lean out the window and reach someone on that side of the street. And Johnson's alleged to have seen two women leaning out of their windows on respective sides of the street, hitting each other with sticks. And he's turned to Boswell, and he said, those two women will never agree because they're arguing from different premises. Okay? Nice little setup for <laughs> a speech about different premises. So Prescott does the setup really nicely, tells the story. And then he hits the audience with the punchline. Those two women will never agree because they're arguing from different buildings, <laughs> right? Which doesn't make any sense mm. at all. It mm. yeah. has no metaphorical impact at all. It's mm. just a rubbish story at the beginning of a speech about something else. And I realised that was my fault because it, even if he had told it correctly and got the play on words, that's not the sort of thing he would say. Yeah. 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 That was an obvious insertion by a clever, clever speechwriter. So it's bad writing because mm. I wasn't writing in character. So you've got to keep writing in character. So it, it is like writing, in, in a sense, it's like writing a character in a play where you know, your character has to kind of unfold but not depart from what we expect of them or is reasonable for them to say.
0: And if a speechwriter writes a duff line, which we, you know, as as writers, We've we have <laughs> all written duff lines. My favorite example of a duff line, and you would probably know that, is uh, Ian Duncan Smith when he was leader of the Conservative Party. And do you remember the line? Uh,
2: yeah. Is it the quiet man. Yeah. It's turning, He's turning, up turning up the, up the, the volume. volume. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Whose fault is that? Was it the delivery? <laughs> is it the speechwriter? Is it a bit of both?
2: <laughs> it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Um, in that one, I can see what they're trying to do. Because they'd been called the, you know, the hopeless, and they were trying to counteract. They were trying to name the central mm. weakness, mm. take it on, and then counteract it. So I can see the thought process, and I, I mean, I can see it's not a great line. You know, it could have been a lot better, but the delivery is truly shocking, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it, if you remember it, the quiet man is turning up the volume. You know, he just shouts at random. It's yeah. really, really terrible. I think if he'd been, in a sense, if he'd been very good at delivering it. He wouldn't have needed the line because the line was was a concession that he was rubbish. So if he hadn't been rubbish, he wouldn't have needed to do it. So in a way, he was bound to get it wrong because he was so awful. Another good example of of someone who wasn't awful but was terrible as a speaker was Mrs. Thatcher. So I mean, she she was very effective, but she was she was odd, and she. Notoriously had no real sense of humour, and she was given a line. That's a
0: surprise. Yeah, <laughs> she was given a line
2: by one of her speechwriters. Um, it was a, it was meant to mock the Liberal Party at the time, and they'd just gotten this new logo which looked like a dead parrot, and so they just used. It was lame even then to use a dead parrot sketch, but they did. They gave her the the dead parrot sketch to to deliver to mock the Liberal Democrats and she dutifully trotted through it. You can imagine how bad this is. Mm-hmm. You should look it up because it's really shockingly awful. Margaret Thatcher doing sort of the John Cleese <laughs> part in the Dead Parrot sketch. And she she obviously, throughout the whole of the rehearsal process, she had no idea why this was funny. She kept asking people, is this funny? Will people laugh? And they kept say, yes, Prime Minister, it's funny. <laughs> and at the end of it, she did it and everyone laughed and she had no idea why they laughed. And she came off and she said, um, to John Whittingdale, who was her chief of staff at the time, she said to him, this Monty Python chap, is he one of ours? <laughs> <laughs> she just had no understanding of what she was saying, and yet and yet she still managed to pull it off, and they, 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 realized, they judged their audience correctly, I suppose, and she just about managed it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you're talking about quite a lot of leaders, and I was curious, one of the things I always find curious is, um, I, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, but there is this idea that we we strive towards an alpha male kind of figure, even if it's a female, Mm. alpha, alpha. Do you know what I mean? What do you think about that? Is projecting that sense of of strength and power and authority an essential quality of being a leader?
2: It's important, yeah. I mean, we often (laughs) pretend we don't want that anymore, and then when we find we haven't got it, we think, oh, why why aren't they strong? I mean, Theresa May. Do you remember when she was briefly the most popular prime minister in the opinion polls there had ever been. Really? That did happen. Really? Yeah, that did happen. The first three months of Theresa May's premiership, her poll ratings were higher than anyone has ever been before. I'm triggered.
0: Oh, and yeah. people
2: said at the time, it's so refreshing to have someone who's authentic. After David Cameron, who was all that you know, spin, et cetera. Exactly the same thing happened with Blair to Brown. It's really refreshing. We've got someone who's really himself, all of that. And then after a while, you think, yeah, but these people don't know what they want they don't know what they're for, and we turn on them. So I think that we're a bit hypocritical about this. We, we say often we want that, but we don't really. The other thing we say of leaders too is we want them to be conviction politicians, and we don't really. We do, what we mean by that is we want them to, to believe what we believe. <laughs> Blair was a very good example because Blair, in his early years, from 97 onwards, when he was immensely popular, 179-seat majority, poll ratings through the sky, he didn't really know what he wanted to do. He came to office and wasted quite a lot of time because he didn't quite have a plan for anything. He didn't know what he wanted to do with health or education. He had loads of scope, but he didn't really know what he wanted to do. Later on, in foreign policy had no views at all. Later on in his premiership, of course, he's acquired really strong convictions, and everybody hates him. Mm-hmm. So it's not really true that when you are clear and you've got strong convictions, that everyone therefore likes you. They might respect you in a regretful way. But they don't necessarily follow you. So politics is a weird business because you've got to try and win people over who don't agree. So, for example, if I'm trying to win office rather than win notoriety, like someone like Nigel Farage, and I want the votes of you too, and, but you think one thing and you think the other, I could say absolutely categorically that I agree with you. And that's fine. I got your vote, but I haven't got yours. What is more tempting for me to do is to find some rhetorical construct that makes you think I'm kind of with you, but you think the same. So that leads me to a level of vagueness, uh, which is inevitable. And obviously, over time, you find out. You discover that in the end, when it comes to policy and action, I have to take your line or your line. And at that point, one of you will feel disappointed. Or perhaps both of you will because <laughs> I won't do it well enough for you and I won't do it at all for you. So that's what happens. That's the process. And that's why politicians are vague and murky. It's not because they are vague, murky people or they're bad people. It's because the structure of politics leads you in argument to try and win the, the highest common denominator. A counterexample to that is someone like Farage who precisely because he's only interested in a small section of the population can be as clear as he likes. So he knows very well he is never going to attract my vote because I hate everything he stands for. But that's his calling card. He doesn't want to win Ponce Economists in The Times. He wants to parade Ponzi columnists in The Times as exactly the sort of London liberal elite who hates him. So he can be hell for leather about the EU and about immigration because his base, which could be up to 30% of the people at its height, will go for that. He's got no chance of getting to 40% when you're in election-winning territory, but he's not trying to. So it's a lot easier to be clear when you don't want a wide range. And that, I think, is the key to why speech is not as good as they used to be.
0: Hmm. And is that the dilemma that Corbyn is facing now? Because before he was hard left, he was you know pro-Brexit, anti-EU, and all of a sudden, he's now got his desire. He's the leader of the party. People used
1: to say he's a man yeah. of principle.
0: <laughs> well, sorry, he's Jewish. Yeah, yeah. It, just yeah. it,
2: yeah. it, it is his problem. Yes, it is. It is his problem. He is, Jeremy Corbyn has gone into politics for the first time in his career. He's been in protest for such a long time. Now all of a sudden he's landed with this horrible job that he never wanted of leading the Labour Party, which means he's got to make that kind of appeal across the lines. And he's getting into trouble because of the things he genuinely believes. You know, I, I left the Labour Party because I believe the top of the Labour Party to be anti-Semitic. I, I, I just do. I think it's in, they're indefensible. But they do have, if I were, gave a more generous account of what they think on foreign policy, they do have strong view about imperialism and capitalism. and That's what they think. But that's not a winning proposition if you're looking to expand beyond the left to people who voted Tory last time. In order for Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister, People who voted conservative in only a couple of years ago will have to vote Labour now. So he then has to construct an argument that not only keeps his own tribe faithful, but also wins those people over. And that's really difficult. And as you said in your question, he he's won his sense of authenticity by not doing that kind of thing. He's a man of principle. He believes what he believes. And in the campaign to be a Labour leader. He was by far the best person, but better than Andy Burnham and Liz Kendall and Mm. whoever else it was, because he did have something to say. I didn't agree with him, but I could see he was clearly the guy who was telling you the truth as he saw it. The others were all over the place with their triangulation and their vagueness. But it's really hard to maintain that once, once you try and expand the coalition. And so he is finding that really difficult. And on Europe, he's found it very difficult, too. Uh,
0: you, so you're saying and this is my an add on to this question you're saying politicians it's all about being murky you know not really committing but in the age of brexit can they really do that anymore where no. you have a simple binary question
2: <laughs> yeah i think they can't i think they can't do it anymore and i think the the transition of politics from class politics to culture war politics is making that kind of old rhetorical style redundant so i think they can't do it and i think you're finding that the labor party's found that on brexit where I've got some sympathy with Jeremy Corbyn's position, actually, because he has, his position has been, though we're a Remain party, we lost the argument, we lost the vote, and therefore we should respect the vote and carry it out. And that's calculated to some extent because lots of Labour voters were, were leave, but it's not an ignoble position. And I've defended him against lots of the critics. But when you test that in an election, like the European elections, it's never going to work. Because... It's like the counterpart of what I said before. If you're a very strong Remain voter, you suddenly think, this guy's not on my side. If you're a really strong Leave voter, well, you're going to go to Farage instead. So you're caught not quite being one or the other. And although it's quite an attempt to make a sophisticated position, this is not a sophisticated argument and it needs to be black or white. And weirdly, Jeremy Corbyn, who's always been a black and white politician, is now the sort of Blairite, vague, murky (laughs) triangulator getting caught in the middle. It's gone full
1: circle. Yeah. Guys, we wanted to tell you we're very excited to say we've got a new sponsor, which is HelloFresh.
0: Indeed, we have. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh
1: pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It is the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every single time. Choose your favorites from 19 recipes every week. They have a whole range of options there for you, including recipes that are ready in under 20 minutes. There's family favorites, there's British cuisine, there's world cuisine.
0: HelloFresh, you're offering trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes.
1: To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk Enter our special code, which is, of course, trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama.
0: The fresh ingredients come direct from suppliers, i.e. they've been picked by Constantine's family.
1: You you can tell France has studied geography at a British school because you can't tell the difference between Russia and Romania.
0: Doesn't matter, mate. Same thing. Brexit means Brexit. (laughs) And the great thing is it's been pre-portioned for you, so there's no food waste, just like in my home country of Venezuela. (laughs) The great thing with HelloFresh is that you're going to be able to choose from 19 different recipes every week. So there is something for everybody. You're going to be able to eat with your kids. There's going to be no fuss. Dinner time is going to be solved.
1: Yeah, I really like the rapid box, which allows you to cook things in under under 20 minutes. Uh, but the great thing about HelloFresh as well is it actually allows you to open up your cooking range. So most households on average have about six recipes that they cook regularly. Uh, HelloFresh has up to 19. So you can kind of expand a little bit in terms of your cooking. And of course, they also don't have a fixed subscription. So there's no term you can cancel, you can uh, skip weeks, you can change the size of the box, uh, you can change delivery address, you can do all kinds of stuff to suit your life. To enjoy delicious moments, head over to hellofresh.co.uk, choose your box, choose your delivery slot, and add your favorite recipes. Discover the
0: easy way to get delicious dinners from scratch. And if you do that, you'll get sick abs just like me. HelloFresh, we are offering Trigonometry fans 60 pounds off
1: four boxes. To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, enter our special code, which is of course Trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. I didn't expect the interview to go this way, but you mentioned, and I didn't know this, that you'd left the Labour Party because of of their uh, allegations of anti-Semitism. I am someone who's, I'm very wary now because the the labels of racist get thrown around so much, I don't even automatically believe it. You know, when people call someone racist, I'm like, well, I, I don't know, are they are they not? But you're obviously someone who's been inside the party. So tell us, you know, what are, what are the, the reasons that you left... What are some of the evidence for, for these allegations? Well, what I th-
2: I don't think Jeremy Corbyn sits there thinking, I'm an anti-Semite, I'm now going to do anti Semitic things. I don't think that. So I don't think in that sort of conscious, proud racism. Round up not the Jews? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I don't think any of that. I don't yeah. think that. I think he's, he, he ends up being an anti Semite out of a series of other convictions. So he believes that imperialism is the most important and potent force in world politics. He believes that America is a driving force of that imperialism, and he believes that American capitalism is a beneficiary of its conquests around the world. The most sort of, notable imperial state in that analysis is Israel, because it's caught in the midst of a whole series of others, and it is oppressing when it's the puppies of America, and he's. That set of convictions, plus an exaggerated sense that this is the most important thing of all human history, leads him to a position of such hostility to what he would call Zionism, that he is then blind to what is overt anti-Semitism. So if you look at the mural on the wall, for example. He didn't see anything wrong. Anyone else would see it straight away.
0: Sorry, could you just describe that a little bit? The mural was for a, our American. There was a mural. A, a
2: mural was painted on a wall in East London with a whole series of very blatant anti-Semitic caricatures uh, on it, all money lenders and usury, and it was all implying that the the Jews. It was implying a world Rothschild-type Jewish financial conspiracy, and it was as clear as day that that's what was being depicted. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn shared that mural, picture of that mural on the Facebook group, didn't really notice it. And so I think he's be, he becomes blind to those things. He also, because of that, he licenses the uh, entry into the Labour Party of people who really are overt, overtly anti-Semitic. So the, the, there's always been a very small minority of people on the hard left who are anti-Semitic. There always has been i mean I, I don't mean to imply by that there aren't some terrible racists on the right of course there are 1000 and you know, different types but oh
1: well, hating Jews is a bipartisan issue it, <laughs> it, it absolutely is it absolutely <laughs> is i mean i mean
2: right now the conservative party's problem is more with um islam yes. with islam than it is with um, with judaism but you know we're not choosing which we, which is the best racism <laughs> i think they're both quite bad <laughs> um, but the one that which which i because i was a member of the labour party this one is particularly pertinent to me and so those people, those overt anti-Semites, are now members of the Labour Party, whereas once upon a time, they weren't. And so I think the, the, the party has been really infected with this, and the response to it has been very, very slow. And I just felt, I don't have, it's not a once and for all thing, I can rejoin the Labour Party if and when this is eradicated as a problem, but I thought, I don't want to be a member of it whilst this is there and not being taken seriously enough. So, I don't mean to make a great fanfare of it, no. but I just think there we are.
1: No, it's just I, re, I really wanted to ask you about it because it's something that we keep hearing about but i would never heard anyone sum, sum it up quite so succinctly and kind of explain what the allegations are, yeah. what's the substance behind it. Again, them. I think it's
2: quite important to be as generous to <laughs> mm, the mm. people you're criticizing as you can. Um, yeah, you because know, I don't think it's, as I said before, I, I, I'm not accusing Jeremy Corbyn of being a racist. I think that's ridiculous. So I think everything I've said is compatible with his claim that he's an anti-racist campaigner. And of course he is in one sense and spent his life protesting against various oppressions and injustices. And I, I don't, I don't want to um, wash away that record, but I just think he has a blind spot here where his various causes clash. And it ends up in a position which I think is really dreadful. And I don't want to be a member of a party which has that feeling. So it's, the, it's a hard left sensibility which I just don't want to be part of the Labour Party. But it is. They are the governing force in the Labour Party. And you can either choose to stay there and try and win it back and engage in that fight, it's not my fight anymore because I'm not active in politics, and I thought actually better off just to to have the freedom to criticize by coming out, and then I can be honest about it. You're
1: outside the tent. I'm outside in. the tent, <laughs> yeah, piss, piss, pissing on it. Uh, pissing yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I was I was gonna. Uh, it's it's a great thing. I'm glad we talked about that because it's something that doesn't get talked about. With that clarity, enough, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but coming back to leadership, who do you see on the horizon? Who you think has the the rhetorical skills, perhaps, uh, to convince? You know, uh, there's some interesting candidates in America uh, on uh, on the Democratic side, obviously. Um, who I'm, I'm curious about Tulsi Gabbard and uh, Andrew Yang, the people who are bringing a totally different offering. Do you think those two people may have the the rhetorical skill to go with the ideas?
2: Yeah, I think they're interesting. I, I think they do. They do are doing something different, and the Democrat Party needs to do something different because it's just tried the old conventional form with Hillary Clinton. That's and why they're going for Joe Biden.
1: Well, <laughs>
0: <laughs> creepy Joe. Yeah, uh, I think I think Joe
2: Biden might have beaten Trump actually. Yeah. Really? Because, yeah, because Joe Biden was very, very strong in the places where Trump won the election. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump won the election very, very narrowly. Yes. And he won in places where Hillary Clinton thought she would <coughs> get sewn up in Michigan, the old industrial heartlands. That's Joe Biden's patch that's where he that's who he is so i think he might well have won in those places and if you win there you win so i think he might have beaten trump though i don't think he'd be the great candidate for next time because i think the politics is so different now and um hillary clinton was the last of the really conventional democrat candidates i mean at a time when the big issue is the elite versus the people what do you put up but a clinton you know it's just it a terrible terrible candidate i mean i think she'd have been quite a good president because she's administratively really smart and all of that. But as a candidate, I think she was really, really bad. Yes. And, uh, I think they do need to do something different. They might go to the left. You know, they might have them, they might do what the Labour Party has done. They might go for Bernie Sanders still. They might go for Elizabeth Warren somewhere. Elizabeth Warren's a much more polished kind of performer. Um, but.
0: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Well, she's
2: not old enough yet because there's an age threshold for the ah. American president. You have to be 35 years of age, mm-hmm. and she won't be 35 in time. So she can't yet be a candidate. I mean, clearly in time, if she, she manages to to keep her elevation up, she's very effective. I mean, there's someone using social media and coming to your attention in in a really clever way, not at all clunky, and um, that's part of rhetoric now is, is getting across in, in different ways. But with her, I
1: feel she's like the left wing Trump in a way. Do you know what I mean? In a way she is.
2: In a way she is. I mean, in a way she is. She's got to see if, see if she can make a transition. Because her job at the moment is simply to critique and criticize. But that's fair enough. Because that is your job in opposition. And she's really good at it. She's very effective. She's clear. You know, when she speaks, she's very good. She could create, you know, good arguments. Sometimes her arguments are a bit cheap, but again, that's part of politics. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to criticise people too much for that. I mean, part of your job is to get attention and to put your opponents on the spot, and so she she's very good at that. Whether she can now make a transition to being a bigger figure who can then make positive cases for things, we'll see. Mm. I wouldn't say she can't because she's clearly talented. But some of the other candidates are, you know, Harris um, is interesting. Um, I'm not sure I've seen yet. The person who has quite got the measure of Trump in that.
1: I'm paper. not sure any but of them have.
2: The I'm not of sure Trump. they have either. And Trump is changing the rules and I think they're spooked by him. I think they don't quite know how to approach him. And there's a very interesting argument about what strategies you would deploy to try and take on Trump. Do you, do you go really serious and try and shame him? Or do you mock him? Or do you have someone who's a real patriot? Do you get an ex sort of veteran to be the Democrat candidate and, and make him seem un-American? What's the best way of doing it? Do you get someone from his heartland who then represents authentic American values of the old industrial north who can then move out from there? It's, it's a big argument within the Democrat Party about what they need. And I'm not sure the answer because mm-hmm. Trump really does pose a problem of the kind we've not seen before in a developed democracy.
1: Well, one of, one of the things that Donald Trump is famous for is you talk about mocking uh, he his what Scott Adams I think calls linguistic kill shots are yes. uh, incredible. I mean, as as if you app you know abstract yourself from whether you agree with him or not, he's incredibly effective at caricaturing the person he's talking about in you know mm. two word absolutely destructive combination. And that Marco person, Rubio. You know, please r- applaud. <laughs> uh, that was Jeb Bush. Oh, was it Jeb Bush? Yeah, yeah so was low it. energy Jeb, yeah, lying Ted Cruz, all this stuff like <laughs> yeah. uh, crooked Hillary. And there's a visual component to it that's accurate. You can, if you look at Hillary, she kind of does look a bit crooked, and then yep. it all kind of glues together, yes, into this thing. So, the mocking, I don't think, is yep. going to work. He's going to blow anyone out of the Maybe. water who comes after him.
2: The visual element's really important mm. because you know painting pictures is what you're trying to do. That that's what works far better in any speech than any uh, long argument. If you can paint somebody a picture, then that's just going to last. Mm. We, we know that that sticks in the memory longer. And Trump is good at it, but other people can be good at it. There's no reason why you can't come back. I mean, God, he's giving you enough inf- material, isn't he? <laughs> you know, it's like th- it's not that hard to come back at Trump and fight fire with fire. It's a question of whether that's the right thing to do. Mm because you might be right. He has got the command of that, and he's fearless. He will say stuff that you won't say. So you've got the internal filter where you think, actually, that's beyond the rules of ordinary civilized conversation. I'm not going to call him that here, even though it's just popped into my head. Well, he'll just say it. You know, the most remarkable moments in all of political history, I think, is when Trump started mocking disabled people. I'm not going to do it, because it was like... The playground of the 1970s in Manchester, where people would do, you know, Joey Deacon jokes, and Trump. I thought we were better than that now, but we're not. There Trump was some debate about
1: it, wasn't that the, whether he intended to do it or whether was he was There was some debate. Him?
2: There was, and um, and typically he he started to climb down, and then basically thought, no, nah, no, and so he didn't deny it. Mm. Um, I mean, he, I suppose in, in, in due course he said he didn't really mean to do it, but. You just look at him. You know, it was—it was pretty obvious what he was doing, and his attacks on Hillary Clinton were way beyond what you'd expect in the normal course of politics. I mean, politics has always been pretty raucous. I don't want to be too pious about it because you go back to 1800 and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, and Adams accuses Jefferson of fathering a child with his slaves, which he had, and uh, (laughs) Jefferson, in in response, accuses Adams of being pro-British. Can you imagine any more? brilliant insult than that, he was pro-British, just after the Revolutionary Wars. And so it was really, really acrimonious, and they hated each other. So it's not as though it's always been sweetness and light. But still, there was a sort of rules of decorum that people observed, which Trump just doesn't. He's like the, the nutter. You look into his eyes, he'll do anything. So he's frightened of him a bit.
0: And do you think that, that what you've just said, we've now reached a new low?
2: Well, every time I think we've reached a new. <laughs> every time we set the bar, he manages to like, like a sort of belly dance to get underneath it. So um, I hesitate to say we've reached a new low. I fear we're heading that way in this country, though. Hmm. I fear that the early tactics of the Johnson campaign are mimicking some of Trump's stuff. I mean, Johnson is close to Steve Bannon, and I can see already some of their tactics being flirted with. So, for example, at the Johnson launch event, they had some of his supporters booing a question by a journalist. That wasn't a great question, but you'd never do that. You'd never do that, but they did. Um, you're getting people turning up on television shows with sort of choreographed ambush attacks on, on the positions that journalists have taken, just sort of pre-planned aggression just to up the stakes. They're starting to flirt with some of that stuff is the way they control the press conference. It's really quite clearly Bannon-like, and I just really hope they don't head that way.
1: Well, that's why I mentioned David Lammy earlier, because I feel like everyone's doing it now. Everybody's got uh, basically an illegal move that they're coming to pull.
2: It's the inevitable and understandable response when one side goes rogue is you go rogue back. You hit them back. Mm. And it's exactly, I've had this feeling the last few days, I think, why don't the other candidates bring out loads of dirt on Boris Johnson and tell the truth about him? Why don't they just, there's loads of things I, I know, which I won't say even here, but i
1: Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Well, well, <laughs> th- well,
2: like, why are they not using it? Why are yeah. they not going oh, there? I thought he was going to tell yes. me. So because... I. And then you think what? this is only
1: going on the internet.
2: Right? Well, the come reason on. I won't—I mean, no, no one reads the internet. <laughs> the reason I won't is because actually you have to stop yourself and think yeah, that yeah. that is another escalation. Then, then you go up there, and then they come back, and before yeah, but you think know of it,
1: how many clicks we'd get. Well, I know, I know, which is why it's very tempting.
2: It's very, very tempting. I know. That. I
1: love that you just said that. Well, exactly. So I'm naming the problem. Yeah. and I'm being brutally well, honest about the, the bis- agenda here. Think
2: of all the business I'd get on the back of yeah. it. I mean, I mean, it's very tempting, but. But we've so we're all, in complete agreement. But, then. Yeah, <laughs> but we've all got an obligation to the nation of, <laughs> yeah, to yeah, which yeah, we're yeah, broadcasting. So we, you know, obviously we'll set a good example. Because mm. it just escalates, and then you know, you you hit each other. And this is what's happening in, in America, where the Congress has been the most partisan Congress. The last two sessions of Congress have been the most partisan in the history of Amer- the American Republic, because there's, there's no collaboration and cooperation between the two parties now. And in a split Constitution, if they don't cooperate, it doesn't work. But they're not cooperating because mm. they're in these tribal blocs now. And the Democrats say, why should we cooperate with this really right-wing, nasty Republican party? So we're going to just behave like they do, which is understandable, but then it's completely locked. And the Republicans then say, oh, the Democrats is impossible. We can't get anything through because of these lunatics. No, you're the lunatic. And it just becomes childish. And there's a real risk we do that. Brexit is doing that to us. Mm. We're doing that in Brexit.
1: Well, we're recording this, as you said, just at the time uh, of the conservative leadership election. By the time it goes out, we will see if the tactics have worked for Boris. I, the thing with Boris is, though, it's, like it's hard to get stuff to stick to him because everyone just thinks he's an idiot anyway.
2: Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Then think it's sort of priced in. They think, well, it's become a character, hasn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. what's happened. That's what it is. He does have a character. The very fact that you called him Boris then I would like to go back and do this Mm. again where you call him Johnson. It's very important that opponents of his destruct the idea that he's Boris. No one else is Jeremy or Michael. You you don't talk like you know the others. But you have a relationship with this Boris character, which you've just described by use of that word. And that's a real gift for a politician if he's managed to do that. Mm. And it's part of the rhetorical task in deconstructing him is to take that apart. And, and treat him as a try and treat him as a serious politician. So exactly for that reason, Boris, you've you've priced in all of these personal transgressions and these, these things which make him unsuitable to be a prime minister. You've just in a way said, oh well, that's just Boris. That's what Boris is. That's the character of Boris. Let's not worry about it. And if you're an opponent of his, you need to take that apart.
0: And. Going, touching on comedy in speech writing, but using Boris Johnson as an example, he has created what I see as a comedian as a comic persona, mm, the bumbling uh, English toff who wanders from you know crisis to crisis, putting his foot in it, yeah. you know all the rest of it.
2: He has, he has. It's a little bit Jeeves. Um, <laughs> he's exactly that. It's a little bit Woodhouse, and uh, it's very interesting whether how it translates. I've always thought that that persona, precisely because it is bumbling and it's not very effective, and the whole joke is that you're a bit hopeless, um, Will is not a very good persona to take you all the way. Because when you're actually then at an international summit doing really boring but important work, I'm not sure we want a clown. I'm, sure, I'm not sure it works at that point, but he does have that. And you saw, in, I don't know if you saw his launch speech, but you had a very uneasy juxtaposition of that comic persona with a load of really quite boring, serious stuff. It's quite difficult to do the transition from one to the other. So to have a bumbling um, persona and get your comedy out of it and then go serious is really hard. There is a character you could do, of course, which lots of comedians have, which is that the, the comedy comes from the serious subjects and you're quite grave and pious and earnest, but you're funny. You can do that and lots of people do it. And at some point in... Johnson's career, he should have chosen to make that kind of transition. He could keep the comedy, keep being funny, because I, I did used to find him funny. Mm. He is, you know, he is a personally witty person who's capable of seeing a joke and delivering it. So he, he is bright and, and funny, much more so than most politicians. But I now find, I find that his comedy really great. I find it annoying. I, I see the construction of the character and beginning to see the, the lines of the joke. and the, That's the crucial thing, isn't it, that you've got to try and conceal the, the construction of it. So it's, it appears as though you're just making this up off the top of your head, even though of course you haven't. You know, my big moment as a speechwriter was, in fact, a joke. That's why I, I made it by uh, a brilliant Les Dawson gag. This was in 2006, I think it was, Tony Blair's last conference to the Labour Party. He'd always announced he was resigning. And he had to go and speak to them. And the day before he spoke, uh, Shree Blair, his wife, had said something really rude about Gordon Brown. She was caught by a journalist calling Gordon Brown a rude word. And she denied she said it, but we knew she probably had because she definitely thought it. <laughs> and it, was, it sounds incredibly trivial now, but it was all over the evening news and it was all over the following day's newspapers. And Brown was furious because he'd done a big speech which wasn't being covered. It shows how trivial we are, a rubbish joke by Sheree Blair was knocking out the Chancellor's speech, but it was, and he was absolutely furious. So we realized we had to deal with this the following day in Blair's speech, and I thought the obvious way to do that is to make a joke of it. We've got to make light of it, and I thought, well, how can we do that? What, what joke can we tell? And I, thought it's, I just thought it's got the elements of Music Hall here, because it's the, the guy next door, it's his wife, there's a sort of seaside postcard vintage music hall element to this. So I, I started looking up old Arthur Askey jokes and mm. you know, Max Miller and, and I found this Les Dawson gag, which was, my wife's just run off with the guy next door. And do you know what? I'm really going to miss him. <laughs> 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 is, which is a you know, classic old yeah. setup yeah. joke. And I thought it's a little bit vulgar for the Prime Minister, but we customized it. And we we wrote it up as, um, he, he made a sort of eulogy to his wife, and he said, at least she won't run off with the guy next door. Yeah, right? I remember that. And we we didn't put it in the script because we didn't want the press to know that it was there, yeah. we released the script beforehand to the press. But we left it up to Blair to judge whether to say it or not, to judge whether it felt right, because we tried to clear it with Brown. And he didn't want him to say it, and we just left it to Blair to, to say it. And I've told that story many times and I mean, you'll know better than I do. When you trip over the line, you don't always get the laugh. Yes. Mm. I've to, when, when on occasions I've told the story and not delivered it properly, I don't quite get the laugh. So for him to deliver it at that moment, judge whether to, he didn't have it with him. He had to remember it. It was a real last minute thing and deliver it. And he did it perfectly. And it just totally brought the house down. It shows the low standards of comedy in politics. It's not that good a joke. (laughs) But it absolutely brought the house down. And the next day, there were double-page spreads in the newspapers about this joke. Mm. And the book I got the joke from was featured on Channel 4 News. And it just became a big thing. Mm. And the interesting thing about it, I thought later, was that the joke, of course, the reason the joke's so good, not because it's such a fantastic joke, it's because it concedes the point. It's because it contains in it the admission that she did say it. It's like yeah, yeah, we know, but it doesn't matter. That's what the joke said. It was the joke was part of the argument. It wasn't just a joke, yeah. and the and that made it worth saying, and it made it potent. And the laughter, I think, was partly the release of people thought that's a tense moment which you've just got rid of with a, with a joke. You've not stopped and said, oh, now here's a joke. We've we've said something in the joke and concealing that plot line in a gag. Is, you know, is what lots of playwrights do. You know, you, you, When your guard is down, they, they sneak a point past you. So, well, and that's what we, that's what I was trying to do there.
1: On that brilliant note, uh, we have to wrap up, mainly because I want to end the interview so you can tell us the salacious details of <laughs> Boris <about> Johnson's <laughs> private life. Um... The last question, thank you for it, it's been a brilliant interview, but the last question we always ask is, what is the one thing that we're not
2: talking about as a society that we should be talking about?
0: Well, Boris Johnson's private life. Well, <laughs> apart from Boris Johnson's private life, I
2: mean, I, I, at any point, if you'd asked me that until recently, I would have said climate change because that's, that has been the great yeah. issue that we haven't talked about. And it's very interesting why no one's ever done a great climate change speech, which they haven't yet, but, but maybe one day they will. Um, so, so now we are talking about that happily. Um, the, the big domestic question we're not really talking about is, is uh, housing and why kids, people are 30 years of age now in good jobs will probably never own their own home because, because it's so ridiculously expensive. And no one's got any clue how to do that. It involves a whole series of difficult things like taxing wealth and taxing property and taxing land. Which sound incredibly left-wing but i'm in favor of all of them and they're in fact old lloyd george liberal ideas at the turn of the 19th century and we need to do that we need to talk about wealth taxes and land taxes and it's a difficult conversation to have because lots of people lose out but that's the conversation i think we need we can't fix the housing market until we get really really tough about it
1: let's dig into that a little bit because this is a debate francis and i often have because uh, I own property and he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> By debate,
0: <laughs> substitute the word row. Debate is fast and sophisticated. No,
1: to be, look, I, I only bought my first flat two years ago and I'm in mm. my mid-30s, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But what the the way I've always seen it is neither party of the two mainstream parties, or frankly any other party, can fix the housing bubble, which is essentially what we have, mm. the the super high housing mm. prices. Because the people who own property have way too much invested yep. in the house prices being high, and they are the people who essentially vote, right? That's right. So, so you're not... That's, that's why we don't talk about it. Right. So, but, <laughs> it's but... your
2: fault. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm sure you own
1: property as well. I do. It's, it's, I do. it's so also it's, my fault. Yeah, yeah. it's also yeah. your fault. But my point yes. is, you're basically going to have to say to every homeowner in the country, you're going to lose 40% of your assets so that Francis here can get a flat. And that is frankly not worth I it. May not,
2: I may not <laughs> phrase it like that. But you are essentially right. That is the polit- political predicament. But that's what leadership in politics is, is finding a way to make that unpalatable argument. Yeah. So there will be losers from this, but I'd have, you'd have to make the arguments about equity, about generational impact. So, yes, okay, you are currently in a position where you might lose out. But in due course, or, or take, take me, I, I'm, I've been a real beneficiary of house price uh, inflation in London. But I also have two children. So what about them? Am I not bothered? that unless I just gift them money, they won't be able to do that. So you find a generational argument for it. And you also find a way of mitigating the impact. So it's not a punitive thing. I'm not trying to punish you for having a house. I'm trying to spread the burden in a more just way. So. I wouldn't have wealth taxes in order to make a a load of new revenue. I'd say what we need to do is just smooth the taxes. So we'll reduce income tax so you can keep more of your money, but we'll transfer that tax onto things like property, which doesn't move and and no one can hide it, or land, likewise, which would have the the beneficial impact, too, of making housing less volatile as an asset, reduce the prospect of a crash, and reduce the prospect of then austerity for the rest of us. So we're all complicit in this bubble, and we do need to prick it in an orderly way. But I'm not going to try and punish you. I want to. I don't want to. I don't want you to pay any more tax than you're paying today.
1: You can see your skill coming out. Yeah, you he can. Yeah, he's, yeah. Just, he's keeping us both happy. Yeah, yeah exactly. he is. That exactly. was very. Yeah, there was well,
0: elements of Blair there as well. 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 Was, yeah. Philip
1: Collins, thank you very much for coming on the show. Tell everybody your Twitter handle.
2: My Twitter handle is uh, p Coll- at p Collins Times.
1: Perfect. And uh, buy Philip's book. It's a brilliant book. Uh, as always, follow us. Uh, at TriggerPod on other social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to subscribe button so you get notified. As you all know, this is also available as a podcast. And we will see you next week with another brilliant episode. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.